Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about zombies. Today's narrative is based on research into voodoo beliefs and Haitian history, exploring the shocking origins of this iconic walking cadaver. This is the ParCast original, Mythical Monsters. I'm your host, Vanessa Richardson. I'm here to take you on your weekly deep dive into history's most chilling beasts. Together, we explore what these monsters are, where they come from, and why they tap into humanity's deepest fears. Today, we're exploring the zombie, the cannibalistic corpse made famous through film and television. This monster has its origins in the voodoo religion, conceived by enslaved Africans in Haiti during the 16th and 17th century. Western culture has since taken the zombie for its own, changing it from the tragic manifestation of a soul in a state of unrest to an undead ghoul. When you're done with this episode, head over to Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to find more free episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals. Coming up, we'll dive into the dawn of the dead. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Today, we know the zombie as a walking, mindless corpse that eats human flesh. Caused by a virus, it infects its victims by biting them. After they die, they then rise up to walk alongside it. The ranks of the dead grow as the ranks of the living dwindle. But the origins of this monstrosity resemble more of a spiritual warning than the shambling cannibal the zombie would become. The word zombie is derived from the Congo word nzambi, which means spirit of the dead person. A fitting name, as the original zombie is more restless spirit than flesh-eating ghoul. In the 17th century French colony that would later be known as Haiti, a zombie was thought to be a soulless body that rises from its grave. They live in the ether, neither living nor dead. With their soul gone, so is their decision-making and autonomy. Only their body remains, to be used as an eternal laborer for the evil sorcerer, the Bokor, that reanimated them. There's some evidence that the zombie comes from a real phenomenon. Bokors supposedly used a powder called coup padre when creating the zombie. This powder may have contained tetrodotoxin, a lethal neurotoxin derived from pufferfish and other sea creatures. It's known to cause paralysis and shallow breathing, which can give the appearance of death. In the 1980s, anthropologist Wade Davis investigated these powders and found that if a person can survive the first few hours after ingesting the poison, they would likely recover. Davis speculated that people who were poisoned would initially seem dead and be buried. They would then shock their village by emerging from their grave later on. At this point, the evil person who created the zombie would feed their victim further drugs and command them through a series of rituals. 
Voodoo is a religion born from Haitian slaves that combines African spiritual beliefs of the Dahomean, Congo, Yoruba, and other groups with French Catholicism. Today, voodoo beliefs are unfairly associated with witchcraft or dark magical practices. This shift began at the end of the 18th century when the slaves of Saint-Domingue, present-day Haiti, overthrew their French masters in the Haitian Revolution. Word of their insurrection spread throughout Europe and North America, causing concern among other countries whose economies relied on slave labor. By demonizing Haitians with rumors of cannibalism and human sacrifice, Europeans could question their validity as a new independent nation. In the French colony of Saint-Domingue, conditions for slaves were horrific and deaths were frequent. But to an enslaved Haitian, the mindless toil that they might experience as a zombie slave was seen as a fate far worse than death. A church bell rang as Marie limped through the empty, charred ruins of Le Cap. A soft breeze floated through the blackened structures and gently ruffled the ash that covered the street. The ground looked like it was rippling. Marie's skin was soaked in sweat and her injured leg ached. She winced as she leaned on it a little too hard. The wound was a week old at least. It had not healed as quickly as she'd hoped. But she had waited a year to see her family. She was not going to let a little pain stop her. She passed the destroyed facade of a shop. Much like the rest of the city, it had been ruined by violence. Its windows were smashed, its interior blackened from fire. She remembered accompanying her Grand Blanc, her master, to this very spot as a girl. She'd been overwhelmed by the bustling city, so much louder than the plantation where she lived with her family. Now, over a dozen years later, she was a revolutionary, returning home from war. The shop felt smaller than she remembered. She wondered if home would, too. A group of Haitians startled her as they sprinted through the city ruins. Their dirt-streaked faces were determined. Marie's cheeks flushed with guilt. They were likely going to the battle at Vertier. The revolution was finally ending, and it seemed there was no able-bodied Haitian who did not want to join in the last fight. Marie could hear the sounds of war from where she stood. It was only half a mile up the road. She hesitated, but continued limping onward. Marie had done her part. Le Cap had been won, and French surrender was imminent. There could be no sweeter reward than her mother's embrace. Her pace quickened. Through the burnt-out buildings, she could see the plantation in the distance. Flames danced on the trees around the field. A dark cloud formed overhead, smoke from gunpowder mixing with the smoke of the flames. She eyed the plantation's ruined sugarcane with satisfaction. Let them burn. 
Marie walked for hours, finally reaching the sloping seaside road that led to the sugar mill where she'd been raised. She stood at its end, butterflies fluttering in her belly. So much had happened since she joined the uprising. She had killed men and set fire to crops. She had freed her enslaved brothers and sisters. She gently touched her cheeks, wondering if she looked different. Her family might not even recognize her. Her mother had begged her to stay, but Marie had been desperate to be a part of the revolution. She'd snuck out in the dead of night. Marie's chest tightened as she imagined her mother crying over her empty mat the next morning. Marie walked across a field toward a cluster of small houses. The vast ocean twinkled beyond them. She passed the Grand Blanc's home, which had an immense sugar mill beside it. The home appeared empty. Marie thought, good, the masters have fled. Marie limped toward the houses. They too were quiet, too quiet. There was no sign of movement anywhere. She looked up at the burgeoning rainfall. She closed her eyes, letting the cool drops cleanse her face. Marie stepped into a small cabin with a thatched roof. The powerful smell of cedar oil and sage hung in the air. She was finally home. The straw mat she'd shared with her siblings was just where she'd left it, pushed up against the window on the far side of the room. A smaller mat lay by the door. That was where her father died of fever years before and where her mother continued to sleep, haunted by his passing. Her dread grew as she realized she was alone. She'd been so sure her family would be here. On the small table by the door was a plate of moldy, stale bread. A piece was ripped off and sat abandoned on the table. A chill ran through her. Something was very wrong. Marie stepped outside the house and eyed the mill. Its door was open, banging in the wind. She limped across the field slowly. The mill door rattled away on its hinges, matching the rhythm of her quickening heartbeat. Marie reached the mill. Before she went inside, she looked back toward the cabins. From the sloping hill, she could see the shoreline where large, dark shapes lay about on the sand. Marie squinted, and then her eyes widened. Bile rose in her throat. She was looking at a field of human bodies. Marie ran down the hill. The beach air reeked of death, rotten and foul. She wiped the rain from her eyes and plunged into the ocean. Marie screamed in anguish. She waited among the corpses, desperately searching for her family. She called out to her mother, to her brother and sister, praying they would answer, but knowing that they would not. Finally, she found them. First, her mother floating face down in the gently rippling waves. Hours later, she found her little brother and sister in a similar state. Marie gently placed her siblings beside their mother in the sand. 
Then she curled up beside them and cried herself to sleep. Coming up, a desperate Marie questions the finality of death. Hi, listeners. I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from Parcast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, we turn the cameras on, and then it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly, with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. Marie wanted nothing more than to fight for her freedom. During the last year of the Haitian Revolution, she ran away from home for a chance to fight her captors. But after the former slaves of Haiti defeated the French, Marie returned home to find that her family had been slaughtered. As far back as the Stone Age, ancient people worried that the dead would not stay buried. Modern experts believe the earliest people to use tombstones or cairns were ancient nomads who placed boulders over their dead, possibly to prevent the body from rising again. Recently, an ancient gravesite in Turkey produced evidence that the dead were perceived as a threat to the living. Archaeologists found skulls from the 8th to 10th millennia BCE that appeared to be cut in a ritual manner. And in Cyprus, graves dated between 4500 and 3800 BCE have been found containing skeletons weighed down by millstones. Ancient Greeks called their undead revenants and believed they could leave their graves at night to harm the living. Certain deceased people, such as victims of suicide or murder, were considered to be more likely to return as revenants. Cultures around the world are rattled by the idea of the dead refusing to stay in their graves. The Norse Dragor will escape from its tomb to murder the living, destroy property, and even eat its victims alive. In Chinese folklore, the Zhang Shu refers to a victim of suicide, murder, or improper burial that becomes a reanimated corpse and moves by hopping. Romania has the Strigoi, which is a vampiric zombie that drinks the blood of its relatives after its death. The Strigoi is created when a dead person has unresolved business, or even when a person dies before they can be baptized. Each culture's version of the zombie speaks to similar fears surrounding the uncertainty of death, the ever-mysterious transition from the world of the living to what comes after has unnerved people for centuries. Marie shook out a white sheet and refolded it over her arm before grabbing another from the linen closet. She stopped a moment to look over her shoulder. 
the well-appointed upstairs hallway of the Grand Blanc's home stared back at her. There was no sign of her former masters, but she still felt nervous being inside. She straightened her shoulders and shook out another sheet. Tears pushed at the back of her eyes and sobs scratched at her throat. She swallowed her grief as best she could. She had work to do. The crying would come later. Shortly after, Marie released her tears as she gently wrapped her younger brother in one of the stolen sheets. Marie's mother and sister lay on the shore beside her, already wrapped. Marie looked at them anxiously. She had no grave to put them in and no one to give them the voodoo funeral rites. Without these customs, she could be jeopardizing their souls. Soon, the sun dried her tears. She stood, tense with resolve. She had abandoned her family in life, but would not do so in death. She needed to find a mambo, a priestess, to give them a proper burial. But it was not even midday, and yet it was already sweltering. She could not leave their bodies out to rot. Marie moved her family to their cabin, where she dug graves. Her injured leg ached and sweat poured from her brow, but she did not stop until she laid each of them within the earth. Satisfied with her work, she set off for Le Cap. She moved briskly despite the oppressive heat. She passed scorched land and destroyed plantations, but saw none of it. Instead, she thought of her family. In her mind, she saw her mother's face smiling proudly. She could hear the laughter of her siblings playing. She nearly collapsed on the road as another wave of grief hit her. But it wasn't just grief. It was joined by a sharp pain searing through her stomach. Her head spun and her legs trembled. She realized that it had been over a day since she had food or water. She shook her head, trying to dispel the fog, but her body was too weak to move. So she lay down. She felt so heavy. The need to sleep was overwhelming, and slowly, she gave in. Maria woke with a start. She lay on a small mat on the ground. A large, tattered tent had been erected over a Le Cap street. Nurses ran about with haste, tending to the wounded. A Haitian man screamed from the mat beside her, blood leaking through the bandages on his chest. She sat up, still dizzy. A nurse ran over, telling her to lie down. Mary muttered that she needed to find a mambo. The nurse replied, frank but sympathetic, you think it is easy to get a mambo or a hoongin? There are more dead than we know what to do with. You will have to do the rites yourself. Marie scrunched her eyes shut. She tried to reply, but agony choked her. Her family deserved better. They needed a priestess. Marie grabbed the nurse's arm, begging for help. The nurse shook her off and turned to leave. Marie's frustration surged through her and she let out a moan. The nurse stopped. She hesitated before she said, I know someone who might help you. 
There's a man who lives just outside Le Cap. He knows the rights, but you must be careful. Do not ask him for more than you are willing to give. The nurse pulled a few livres from her pocket and placed them in Marie's hand. She spoke firmly. Make sure you pay him with this. The nurse told Marie where she could find a bocor. Marie shuddered. Her mother had warned her of bocors, sorcerers of dark magic. As a young girl, the thought of bocors had kept her awake at night, but her family needed her to be brave. At the nurse's instructions, Marie soon found herself outside a small wooden house not far from her family's mill. Before Marie could knock, the door opened. Standing before her was a tall Haitian man. His head was tilted to the side and his eyes stared past her, unseeing. The hair rose on her neck. This man did not seem whole. Suddenly, his arm shot out and grasped her wrist. Marie gasped in surprise. His grip was strong. His limp jaw fell open, though his gaze showed no sign of life. A voice called from within the home, telling her to enter. The Haitian man released her and stepped aside. Unnerved, she slid past him. The room smelled of smoke and rancid meat. Spices and herbs dangled from the ceiling. They swung to the side as an elderly Haitian man stepped through them. His wispy white hair barely covered his head. Marie asked him if he was the Bocor. He nodded and stared at her. She swallowed and held out a shaking hand, offering him the livres. After telling him about her family, she asked, what can you do for me? The Bocor stared at her for a long time and then slowly said, Whatever you want. Marie kept her expression calm, but the tears came anyway. She stammered out a request for her family's funeral rites, but as she spoke, she thought about what she wanted most of all. The words involuntarily flew from her lips, but truly... I want them back. The Bokor tilted his head and said softly, I can do what you ask. Let me prepare and keep those. The Bokor pushed away her fistful of coins. Marie protested, remembering the nurse's words, but the Bocor refused once again, wondering aloud if Marie wanted her family back or not. Marie slowly nodded. No matter how great her unease, the Bocor's promise was not something she could refuse. The Bocor said smoothly, then you will accept my price. Marie watched the Bocor grind herbs into powder. Her spine tingled. Someone was watching her. She whipped around to see the tall Haitian man that greeted her at the door. He stood in the corner, staring at her blankly. Marie shivered in spite of the warmth in the room. Doubt once again surged through her. But before she knew it, 
the Bokor faced her with a smile, clutching a small satchel in his hands. He was ready. Marie led the Bokor back to the mill. She stared down at her family's bodies, lying in their open graves. Seeing her mother's bloated, bluish skin made her grief feel fresh once again. She knelt on the ground, wailing. The Bokor appeared at her side. He said to her, Back away. You cannot be near when I take the T-Bonage. Marie frowned. The T-Bonage was what made the soul unique. What could he want with it? She watched as the Bokor placed three clay jars in the grass. She opened her mouth to protest, but closed it quickly. She did not want to anger the Bokor, or he might abandon his task. She would demand answers after she had her family back. He slowly unwrapped the dirt-stained sheets covering Marie's mother. He tore a piece of her dress and set it aside. He did the same for Marie's little brother and sister. The Bokor poured his powder mixture on each of her family's chests. He waved his hands, ushering an unseen entity toward the clay jars. Then he blew on each jar before wrapping them in the torn clothing and storing them in his bag. Marie turned to stare at her mother's face, struck by how peaceful she looked in the soft moonlight. Her mother's eyes shot open. Marie cried out in shock. She stumbled forward, reaching out a hand, but her mother did not move. She just lay there staring blankly upwards. Marie frowned. Mama, it's Marie, get up. Her mother remained motionless. Marie looked to her brother and sister. Their eyes were also open. Like her mother, they did not move. Marie yelled, get up, it's Marie, I am, I have come back. Marie looked to the Bokor for an explanation. He gave her a smile that sent chills down her spine before turning back to the bodies and muttering, rise and approach. Marie's mother and siblings lurched from their graves. They stumbled past Marie and to the Bokor, a whiff of sulfur and dirt in their wake. Something was wrong about them. Their movements were uneven, as if their limbs did not remember how to work. But their eyes were even worse. Wide, unseeing, and bloodshot. This was not her family. This was something else. Coming up, Marie's family reunion takes an alarming turn. Now, back to the story. Marie's life had become a horror story. She had lost her whole family during the Haitian Revolution. Her grief guided her to a voodoo sorcerer called a Bokor, who offered her a chance to see them alive once again. From 1697 until 1804, the colony of Haiti was known as Saint-Domingue. 
it was controlled by French colonizers who used African slaves to work their coffee and sugar plantations. The revolution that followed was the most successful slave rebellion in history. It lasted from 1791 until 1804, with the self-liberated slaves forming a new nation named Haiti, free of their French oppressors. Sociologist Mimi Scheller connects the horrors endured by the Haitian slave to the mindless toil of the living dead in her book, Consuming the Caribbean, From Arawaks to Zombies. She writes, the Haitian zombie, a living dead slave deprived of will and controlled by a sorcerer, is the ultimate representation of the psychic state of one whose body and spirit is consumed. But slavery was not only symbolic of the zombie, it was the source of its creation. Haitian slaves believed that death would release them to their homeland in Africa. Therefore, suicide was quite common. But the burgeoning lore of the zombie created a reason to stay their hand. University of California, Irvine professor and journalist Amy Wolentz theorizes that the plantation slave drivers were responsible for instilling fears of zombification within their laborers to prevent them from ending their lives. Wolentz notes, to become a zombie was the slave's worst nightmare, to be dead and still a slave, an eternal field hand. Marie angrily grinded her teeth as she watched her newly risen family gather around the Bocor. She yelled, this is not what I wanted. Put them back the way they were, anything but this. The Bocor chuckled as he tilted his head to the side. Her family vacantly mimicked his movement. He lifted a hand and her family followed suit. The Bocor said, I have thought of a way you can repay me. There is much to do around my little home. I would be relieved to have the extra hands. Marie gasped. No, he could not take them. She lunged for her mother's arm. She pleaded. Remember when I cut my finger at the mill? You told me that it is the owner of the body who looks out for the body, that no matter what anyone said, I am the owner of my body. Marie stared into her mother's empty eyes, begging her to understand. But her mother was not there. No one was. Marie whipped around to face the Bocor. Her stare was lethal. She was not scared of this old man. It was he who should fear her. Marie grabbed a large stick from the ground and raised it at him, point first. Her voice was like steel as she said, I have killed stronger men than you. You will let them go now. The Bokor shook his head pityingly. But I have their souls. What do you have? Marie stared at his canvas bag in horror. The jars, their tea bonage. Speechless, Marie watched her mother follow the Bokor down the road into the darkness. Her siblings fell in step behind their mother. Shock numbed Marie's body. Soon her grief returned and she let out a scream. 
Marie ran after the Bocor, catching up within minutes. She slipped between her siblings and took their hands. Their flesh was ice cold, and they did not return her grip, but she held on. The Bocor looked back at her curiously. Marie called out, I will not leave them again. If you will not let them go, you will just have to take me too. The Bocor nodded. Marie eyed the back of his head with loathing. She would play his game for now, but soon she would figure out how to release them all from this curse. Marie worked alongside her family at the Bocor's bidding. She whispered in their ears, reminding them who they were. She told her brother about the first time he saw a pig. She whispered of the time she had kissed their daddy goodbye. She told her mother how she missed her salted cod. But still they plodded through their tasks, doing whatever the Bocor asked of them without emotion or protest. Marie's heart broke more each day. Marie felt the Bocor watching her carefully, but she gave nothing away. She knew how to serve a master while keeping thoughts of revolt close to her chest. One night, Marie cooked some freshly caught cod over the fire. Her mother and siblings stood motionless with the Bocor's other mindless slave. He waited, leaning back like a king. Marie pulled the cod from the fire and set it on a big leaf. The Bocor reached forward to grab at the food, but she pulled it away. It needed seasoning. The Bocor looked about to stop her, but Marie's glare silenced him. She said, this was my mother's recipe. I will not make it any other way. Marie placed the cod on the table and looked through the Bocor's home for something to season it with. As she rummaged, she caught sight of a small door behind a pile of dried puffer fish. She opened it. Within was a variety of jars and bottled herbs. Her eyes landed on what she was looking for, salt. She poured it all over the cod generously. Marie watched as the Bocor ate. Her gaze drifted to her mother standing behind her. Manman had made cod so many times, maybe the taste of her own recipe would be strong enough to remind her who she was. As the Bocor feasted, Marie approached her mother with a piece of cod and placed the fish in her mouth. Behind her, she could hear the Bocor slowly rise to his feet. He asked her what she was doing. Marie stepped aside and watched as his gaze settled on her mother's jaw, gently chewing the cod. The Bocor let out an infuriated scream and shoved Marie out of the way. He grabbed her mother's cheeks, trying to get the cod out. Marie's mother clamped her jaw shut. Her dead stare changed into one of absolute fury. Marie's mother let out a scream. Her hands flew up, seizing the Bocor by the neck. 
Marie looked from her mother to the cod that had awoken her. She grabbed the rest of the fish and fed it to her brother and sister while the bokor fought off her mother. They too suddenly wailed and joined the attack. The Haitian man stood, silently watching his master, overcome by the undead. Blood blossomed as Marie's brother raked his nails across the bokor's face. Her sister sunk her teeth into his shoulder. The bokor flailed, trying to push them away, but Marie's mother tightened her grip around his neck. The bokor's cries were cut off. Choking rasps gurgled from his throat. Finally, he stopped moving. Marie stared coldly at the bokor's still body. She took a flaming log from the fire and shoved its burning end to his back. He jumped up, screaming as his back erupted in flames. The bokor ran around in circles, howling in agony. The fire worked quickly, eating at his flesh. Finally, he sank to his knees his features entirely consumed by the curling flames. Marie and her family watched until their captor was little more than a charred shape on the ground. Smoke rose from his body, gently parting to reveal his utterly featureless face. Marie grabbed her mother's hand. Mama, can you hear me? Her mother tried to answer, but her tongue lay dead in her mouth. She moved her jaws open and closed a few times, and then she slowly reached up to caress Marie's cheek. Marie gasped at her mother's touch. It was cold, but familiar. Her mother gave a mournful moan. Marie realized what she was trying to say. This was goodbye. Marie followed her family back to the mill. She hugged herself and cried, watching as her family stepped back into their graves. Marie's mother looked at her one final time before disappearing from sight. They were finally at peace. The zombie has undergone a drastic transformation since its Haitian origins. As cultural historian Anne Cordas points out, the very nature of the zombie is a voiceless being lacking a will and intellect of its own. She further refers to the zombie as a blank slate, indicating that cultures can mold it to represent their own concerns and ideals. More than 200 years after the Haitian Revolution ended, the zombie found its way into American cinema with the 1932 film White Zombie. The film, which takes place in Haiti and features a sinister voodoo sorcerer, effectively began a whitewashing of the legend, since it told the story of a doomed white female protagonist. In the decades since, the zombies' tragic origins in slavery have largely disappeared from the myth. 
George A. Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead would reimagine the Haitian zombie as the cannibalistic monsters we know today. Romero's 1978 follow-up, Dawn of the Dead, served as a connection to another Western ideal, consumerism. The backdrop of the movie was in a shopping mall, and as an American literature and film scholar, Kyle William Bishop points out, the insatiable need to purchase, own, and consume has become so deeply ingrained in 20th century Americans that their reanimated corpses are relentlessly driven by the same instincts and needs. But as time wears on, cultural anxieties shift, and so has the zombie. With the plethora of fictional examples like The Walking Dead, zombies have come to represent a plague-like annihilation of the human race. This is implied in the name of the horror subgenre, Zombie Apocalypse, which ties these mindless creatures to the doom of humanity. In this sense, the idea of a zombie apocalypse is almost a wish fulfillment for the survivalist, who stockpiles weapons in the hope that their skills will come in handy when society collapses. Their preparation is rewarded with hundreds of slow-moving targets. There are even companies who directly target the zombie apocalypse as a way to sell their tactical gear. One more literal reason the modern zombie is feared is because Western countries like America are culturally uncomfortable around their dead. Funeral homes are designed to hide the dead from the living. Seeing our loved one as a corpse is an uncomfortable reminder of our own mortality, especially when it comes lurching towards you. But perhaps another reason the zombie is frightening to Western cultures is because it represents the masses rising up to destroy the society they were forced to build. Even developed nations rely on a lower class, and in some cases, the slave-like labor of distant, foreign nations. The middle and upper classes perhaps fear that their privilege might make them vulnerable and culpable, that a horde will drag them down to their level. The zombie has completed its transition, evolving to reflect Western fears rather than its Haitian origins. But today, the primary role of zombies is as a fictionalized escape from reality, a way of facing cultural fears in a controlled space. But to the slaves of Haiti, the zombie was their reality. The Walking Dead were a very real threat and spoke to the tragedy of their brutal daily existence. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.
Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Kate Murdoch, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow Blind Dating for a Dash of Romance and Rejection. YouTuber Tara Michelle hosts, and she's thrilled to help hopeful singles meet their match once they've survived the hot seat. Follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.